Listen to shoot the defense. It's unbelievable, Jeff. Hello, welcome to a special edition of Shoot the Defense. I'm your host, Stell, and my guest has a list of qualifications and experience as long as the Great Wall of China. I'm not even exaggerating. This gentleman has coached national teams, held technical director and academy manager roles for leading football charities. He's been recognized for his coaching work at grassroots level and has even dabbled in a bit of media work. Ladies and gents, it gives me great pleasure to introduce UEFA Pro license holder and the current head coach of Safe Sporting Club, Jonathan McKinstry. Jonathan, welcome to the show. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, very good, Stel. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it's, it's an absolute pleasure, mate. And, uh, you know, we've been trying to arrange it and we, we finally got it. We finally got it. <laughs> yeah, we got there in the end. <clears throat> exactly, exactly. Well, Jonathan, I was doing a bit of digging as I usually do when preparing for an interview. And, and I must say your CV is one of the strongest I've ever seen. I mean, I think we'll need more than one shot to cover your achievements. But let's go all the way back to 2004, where you began your applied sports science with coaching degree. What were your aims and ambitions at the time? Um, well, for me, it was always coaching. Um, sort of at high school, I was sort of quite self-aware and that I probably wasn't at the level to make the move from Ireland over to England to play professionally. And I sort of thought a coaching route was very much for me. Now, you can obviously do degrees in sort of sports coaching. But for me, I, I had a sense that science was going to play a bigger role in football going forward. And so I felt whilst I never had ambitions to be a sports scientist myself, I felt that um, I, I felt that having an understanding of the of the science that might be used in sports going forward would be important and and yeah, went and did that degree, but it was always very much to support my knowledge from a coaching perspective. Okay, so at the time, were you coaching as well as doing your degree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, whilst I, I went to Northumbria University in Newcastle upon Tyne, and really I probably spent more time coaching than actually go at university, because I think, as you know, a lot of degrees in the UK, you maybe have nine or ten hours of contact time right. at university, and the rest of it is then your own personal learning. And um, But I was probably so in class and in seminars, maybe nine or ten hours a week, but I was probably coaching 15 hours a week oh, between wow. doing, doing work with Newcastle United sort of football in the community programs. I coached um, a local under-16s team in Gateshead, and then I also coached sort of the university football team. So, you know, I was, I was out pretty much every evening, you know, of the week coaching and sometimes doing some school stuff with Newcastle United. So, yeah, I was, I was doing a lot of sort of hands-on coaching whilst at university. Excellent, excellent. Well, um, you spent a couple of years at New York Red Bulls at, as their pre-academy coach. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you started the role just after you graduated. So how did that move come about? Um, it was really one of, I was sort of looking at going out to America and I'd put my CV in for a few things and somebody I knew had done some stuff with the New York Red Bulls and said, well, why don't you put one in directly to them rather than, you know, I think you see a lot of these big coaching companies, you know, that a lot of people go, go over with, whereas it's less common to go over specifically with a club. And, right. you know, I put in and, and I ultimately, I, I still remember it because I, I was doing back in Ireland doing sort of a summer soccer school. And I think I had a voicemail at one lunchtime between coaching sessions. And um, it was from someone in the office at, at Red Bull and, they were interested in me coming over and being, you know, part of their training programs initially, oh, wow. not so much with their academy or pre-academy, and and that sounded very good. They wanted me to come and sort of be their their link coach at Stat at a club in Staten Island, and and I thought, yeah, that sounds excellent. It sounds good. Get out, you know, practical coaching, um, see the world a little bit. Um, and then I'd sort of all agreed and was ready to do that. And then I think 36, 48 hours later, I got another phone call from them. And basically someone within the academy had happened across my CV or had been <laughs> shown my CV. And, and they sort of said, well, hold on, maybe we'll get this guy involved and in not out in one of our partner clubs, but actually working with our own players. And, oh, wow. and yeah, they said, well, would you be interested in coming and working with our sort of 
pre-academy program in in the United States at the time academy started at under 15 level so anything from sort of 8 to 14 was considered pre-academy mm. and um and yeah, I just sort of, you know, I was already geared up to go and work with a partner club. So when they said, look, would you like to come and work with even better players than that? You know, the players who we've scouted to come and be part of our program. You know, it was an easy decision to say, well, yes, absolutely. And yeah, went over on initially a three-month contract because they were halfway through the MLS season already. But obviously, you know, enjoyed it and got on very well with the people there and fitted in into the environment and <coughs> ended up staying for for around just over around two years in total. That's, that's impressive. And what's even more impressive is that you went out there with your UEFA A and B license, didn't you? Well, I went out. I'd already started my A license. I actually, it was it was an interesting process of trying to do my final assessment for my A license because originally there was the potential of being assessed in the United States by someone who had you know, been certified as a UEFA assessor, who was the coach, I can't remember his name now, but he was a co- head coach at a college in upstate New York. And But we could never get the time together or the date together for him to come and assess me or, you know, me to go and work with his college team. So what ultimately happened was I flew back to Ireland and coached, I think it was like the under-17s representative side of one of the counties in, in, in Ireland for just one session I'd never met them before and just went in and sort of borrowed the team to do my final 11 v 11 assessment and for my a license and I think I was probably back in Ireland for three or four days purely to do the assessment and then fly back to New York so yeah it was it was a bit of a sort of going round, you know a few roundabouts to get mm. that final assessment done but yeah i'd went out i'd already done my b license i i i had my b license before i started university um because i did it when i was 18 i sort of took it immediately when i was 18 and passed it straight away um and so i went to university already having that and you know i'm a bit different maybe than some coaches nowadays i see a lot of coaches nowadays who are in this big rush to get through all of their licenses where if you look at me i sort of did my a, my b license when i was 18 passed my a license when i was maybe 22 23 and sort of you know got my pro license there when i was what 29 30 so there was a few years between each of them i wasn't that i need to do it the next year or the next year it was like well i'll get there eventually it's more important to actually coach rather than get the piece of paper absolutely mate well I know the New York Red Bulls are heavily focused on developing coaches as well as players there's there's a great management support structure there I mean there's plenty of growth opportunities and you can really boost your coaching network so am I right in thinking the role wasn't just on the field coaching and admin I mean I'm sure there were targets to meet like I don't know increase the amount of camp programs well, again, that was, you know, for me, I think personally, fortunately, because I was working with our scouted players, you know, I didn't really do that. That was, yes, there were a, a team of maybe 30, 40 coaches who came out every year who went and worked with the local partner clubs, went and did the soccer camps during the summer. But I was sort of on the tier above that in the sense that, you know, we worked with players who had to come through a tryout to be part of the Red Bull program. And and yes, I think they always wanted the academy and pre-academy staff to go and maybe do one or maybe two camps during the summer as a lead coach, just right. to show some of the training programs, coaches, the things that we were sort of looking for at the sort of academy and pre-academy level. But no, actually, that was one of the things that I went there. And because of the role I was given, I was able to focus purely on coaching and curriculum development. So, you know, we at that level, sort of worked on developing a curriculum that the training programs as a whole could access. Um, So that was very fortunate for me in the sense that that sort of side of of the sales side of soccer in America, I didn't get involved in. I was able to focus purely on coaching, which was nice. Excellent. Well, a year later, you became an academy coach at the Right to Dream Academy. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I'm aware, Right to Dream send around three to five students to the US on student athlete scholarships, and they've got many partnerships across the northeast of the US. So, how did you get involved there, and did you ever visit their academy in Ghana? Yeah, well, absolutely. I am. Um, when I was still at university, um, I actually met. Uh, 
uh, Tom Vernon, who is the owner and founder of the Right to Dream Academy. And it was part of he had previously been um, head scout for Manchester United in Africa. And I had obviously been awarded the, the sort of grassroots coach of the year by Manchester United when I was sort of 19, 20. And just again, I can't remember how he managed to get in touch, but he got my contact from somewhere, maybe from Manchester United, I don't know. And I basically received a phone call one sort of day and it was Tom saying, look, this is who I am, this is who Right to Dream are, and gave me a bit of a brief history of it. And at the time, they were looking for a new technical director for Right to Dream in Ghana. And he was like, look, we'd be interested in you. Now, I was only 19, 20 at the time. But he was like, we'd be interested at you maybe for the role. Um, Tom had obviously started the academy from scratch when he was 22, 23. So wasn't averse to offering senior positions to young people if they're the right people. And he basically said, look, don't make a decision over the phone. You've never been to Africa. You know, tell me when you want to fly and we'll fly you out here. So basically they paid for an airplane ticket and said, look, get on the next flight to Accra. And I went, basically went to Ghana for a month between, I think it must have been between second and third year at university. And with the view to if they maybe offered me the job, well, maybe you wouldn't finish the degree, maybe you'd take the job. Mm. And I went out and it was a great experience. The coaching was excellent. And I felt that the coaching went very well, as did Tom. But even I knew that I wasn't ready to be sort of a technical director of a football academy at 19, 20 years of age. I, I didn't have the management sort of savvy. I didn't have that skill set yet. And so we decided, you know, that the time wasn't right, but we would keep in touch. And then, yeah, years later when I was in New York and the Craig Bellamy Foundation was being set up and Tom and Right to Dream were the consultants for that, he got in touch again and said, look, we think you'd be a really good fit for this. And we basically agreed that I would take that job, but that academy wasn't due to sort of open for another six, seven months. And the decision was made for me to come to Ghana ahead of that and spend sort of half a year in Ghana, sort of helping with their management team and doing coaching as well, just to really acclimatize to the sort of African culture again, because ultimately I'd only spent sort of four weeks in it prior to that. Mm. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned the culture because it, it segues on to my next question relating to the actual culture of, a, of soccer out there. You know, we know that Ghana have produced so many fantastic footballers in, in the past and even they're still producing them. But what would you say is the main attitude towards soccer out there from the youngsters primarily? There is such an intense desire to be successful um, it's that whole thing of when you discuss with people do they want something or do they need something right. now ultimately ultimately a career in football is something people want but the attitude in a lot of west african countries is that they need it they are so desperate for it and it's you know it's to get to europe it's to play professional football in a european club environment and, you know, to play in the Champions League. And it is, you know, it is just this burning desire from the youngest ages of sort of seven, eight years old that when you work with these players, especially those top-end players who've been recruited to an academy like Right to Dream, they just have this burning ambition that, you know, anything short of being a professional footballer in Europe in their minds is failure. Now, ultimately, wow. it's not failure. There's a lot of other levels of success, but... It really is that just pure, you know, unrefined determination to go and do it. And, you know, I've seen that nowhere else but in West Africa. You know, mm. it's not it's not sort of refined, you know, confined to Ghana, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Senegal. All of these countries have it. But I've never seen it in quite so uh, vociferous and sort of strong ways. I've seen it in West Africa. Wow. That's impressive. It's impressive. Um, well, Fast forward three years and you became the youngest head coach at international level when you got the Sierra Leone national team job, age 27. I mean, before we talk about your tenure, tell me about the Craig Bellamy Foundation where you became technical director and then the academy manager. Yeah, no, I spent in total five years in Sierra Leone and it was, you know, the environment that we had at, at the academy there was was excellent you know there was some great young players we worked with and a number of them I think at most recent count there's 
there's probably nine, eight, nine or ten of them on full scholarships out in the United States. Some are now at universities, some are still at private boarding schools, like high schools. And, um, you know, but all of them are on full scholarships out there and doing very well. Um, one of our lads is at Aarhus, the uh, Danish Premier see, League yeah. club, doing, doing very well. And a couple other boys took an opportunity and went out and played in Asia. So, you know, probably from a group of players, that first generation of players of that team of maybe 16, 17 boys, I think probably you're talking 13 of them are outside of Sierra Leone now pursuing either sports academic opportunities or pure sporting opportunities. So it was, you know, it was it was a really good time and it was it was working with some really great players and really great people as well. You know, a number of the staff that we recruited there, I'm still in close contact with. Some of them have worked with me since. Others, I'm sure, will work with me again in the future. And yeah, it was it was it was something special. And it's you know, I have very fond memories of my time in Sierra Leone and with the academy. Brilliant. Well, I presume that your your work for the charity was kind of like the step, the stepping stone that earned you the Sierra Leone job. Yeah, absolutely. I think we were the only um, we were the only fully residential. We were the only professional football academy in the country. So in essence, we were almost like the national academy, okay. despite being a, pri- a private entity. And um, you know, that's not to say all of our players. You know, actually, I always find it funny that only one or two of our players ever got called up to the under seventeens or the under twenty national teams, despite clearly us what we felt were the best young players in the country because we recruited them from all over after a you know very in-depth process of scouting and you know analysis so we were always a bit you know we always find it strange we didn't have more in the youth national teams but that's the way it is but you know I'd been in the country for three years and I think the academy had got a very good reputation for playing good football and you know people knew who I was because I was the only sort of permanent member of staff who'd been there throughout we'd had other staff who came out for a year at a time etc but I was the one sort of mainstay and yeah when the national team job came up it was one of those things that because I'd been involved in football and and you know dealing with different wings of government you sort of knew who to make phone calls to and it, it meant it meant I was able to organize a meeting it was a case of look I think if you're looking for a new head coach and at the time, it was very the sort of the the war the talk that was going around Sierra Leone in football after the previous Swedish coach had left was that with only three World Cup qualifiers remaining, they were maybe going to just appoint a local coach so that they didn't have to pay for flights and visas and hotels and all of the things that come with having a European-based coach. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, you know what? get me in the room because there's not a better qualified or on the grass coach in this country than me. You know, I know the team. I've been watching the national team play. I would watch all of their away games on the TV. I'd go to the stadium for all the home games for the three years I'd been there. So I knew the team and I just felt, I felt I was the, if they were going to go for someone who was living in Sierra Leone, I felt that I surely was the only solid option. And despite, you know, the age I was and I went and I met initially with the director of sport for the for the government alongside the general secretary of the FA. Both of them liked what I heard. I then got to meet the the minister of sport for the country and he liked what I heard, what I was saying. And yeah, two days after that, they sort of the phone rang and they offered me the job initially on that basis of the final three World Cup games. And Obviously, we got renewed for another campaign after that. So, yeah, it was a bit of a whirlwind sort of week that <laughs> in terms of how everything went. But, yeah, it was, yeah, I, I felt going into it that I was the best candidate within the confines of Sierra Leone. And in essence, it was a case of right time, right place. Because if I was living in London at that time, I wouldn't have got the job. But I wasn't. I was living in Freetown. Mm. And, and, yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to be offered the job. There you go. Well, look, I mean, in the time you were there, they reached their highest ever rankings in both Africa and the rest of the world. Uh, you also unbeaten at home. So I'm sure you knew about the pool of talent available, given that you called up Dean Conte and Bangura, who were in Chelsea's reserves and under 18 squad at the time. Yeah, it was about, you know, for me, it's about casting the net wide mm-hmm. and, and deep and, and trying to find talent. Now, 
not all of them work out. Um, some of them didn't. Um, one of the players you mentioned didn't, but the other one worked out fine. Mm. The um, and and it's the same. I've all and also coming from an academy background, you know, I've never been adverse to giving young players a chance. Um, in my first game with Sierra Leone against Tunisia, we played a young boy called George Davies, who was only sixteen and was playing was registered at a Premier League club in Sierra Leone, mm-hmm. and he'd never played a professional game of football before he'd been playing for this team in Sierra Leone's youth team and I just thought he's I brought him into the training squad and his whole week was excellent and I just thought you know what I'm going to play him um, and we ended up dropping a 30 year old 50 cap player to play George on the left wing and he, he terrorized Tunisia for 70 minutes before he ran out of gas and he ultimately then went and signed for a team in, in the Bundesliga and he's now playing in Austria, actually. He just won the Austrian um, second tier last season. Oh, wow. So, you, you know, but we gave him his full <laughs> professional debut in a World Cup qualifier when he was 16. And um, he's now done, he's got quite a good career under his belt over the last few years because, of, you know, partly because of that. So, yeah, I've always believed, and if young players are good enough and they have a seriousness about them in terms of how they approach the game, then we'll give them an opportunity. Um, but unfortunately, more and more, I find a lot of young players don't have a seriousness about them. Mm. They think being a professional footballer is easy. It just takes talent. But, you know, it takes a lot of hard work. And I think some of them almost need to fail first and go down a level or two. Like we had player Abdullah Belbagi, who'd been, I believe, at Tottenham's academy when he was a child and got released when he was 17, 18, and ended up dropping all the way down to the conference, the non-leagues oh, in right. England, before coming back up to play for Tranmere and sort of League One, League Two. And he was an England youth international, who by the time we came across him was sort of 22, and we convinced him to come and play for Sierra Leone because he had Sierra Leone heritage. And But his attitude to training and to work was excellent because he'd had that failure, he'd had that setback, but he'd come back from it. Mm. And I tend to find almost young players to really understand what it takes to be a professional sometimes need that setback, unfortunately. How did some of the squad members take to you bringing in these youngsters and players that had, had um, that you know Sierra Leone heritage but hadn't really played to the national team before? Did they work on them with open arms? Um, yeah, I didn't think there was ever anything too bad between the players. Um, ultimately, if, if some senior players were being left out of the team for for maybe a younger player who'd maybe grown up abroad or mm. you know, even a young player like George, I said, who'd not made his pro debut yet. You know, he was born and bred in Sierra Leone, but he was taking you know, someone much more older than him's place. Now in Africa, as is in many developing cultures, there is a hierarchy of you know the elder gets to play and if you look at a lot of african national teams they tend to be quite old you know there's not a lot of players under 25 playing international football in africa Mm -hmm. yet during my time with sierra leone when i took over the average age of the team was about 30 when i left it was about 22 oh wow and so we we significantly reduced the age of the playing squad um was that intentional though we wouldn't have done it if the players weren't good enough. Right. Um, we, we felt that one of our things was we wanted to play a higher tempo game, and we felt that young legs would help us do that. But you can't just put young players in for the sake of putting young players in. They have to be able to deal with it. You know, and, and one of the challenges sometimes putting young players in is if they're playing against an older, hardened centre-back or full-back who's going to, you know, the dark arts of the game, then maybe younger players who are just breaking through can be intimidated by that a little bit. So it's only if they're ready. But, mm. you know, again, I've learned that young players can be trusted. And it's it's that sort of thing, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson said many years ago that, you know, with when he was putting those young player that young team together in the early nineties, was that you know these young lads they've got so much energy and they bring a real energy, and then they even bring more energy out of some of the senior players who are in the group. So that's really what we tried to do with Sierra Leone, and you know I, I think it worked. We ultimately had some level of success. We didn't manage to qualify for a tournament, but we did have good results. We did do well in the rankings and. Ultimately, it was, you know, I think had we been able to stay together longer, we'd have continued on that trend. But, 
you know it wasn't meant to be. Mm. Do you know it's interesting that you mentioned these young players because look, I'm, I'm a Man United fan, and you know the past few months, obviously Mourinho has taken a lot of stick, and uh, which is understandably so. But at the same time, a lot of people on social media are saying, well, you know, we've got all these youngsters, we've got um, Angel Gomez, we've got Mason Greenwood, why doesn't he give them a shot? And my argument is they're 17 years old. You can't throw them in against a Wolves or a Liverpool or, you know, you can't throw them in at the deep end at this stage of their career because they're not fully ready. But people will argue that they, they'd be doing it in the under-23s. But again, on the flip side, my argument is, well, is that, you know, the, the level of competition there is completely different to, to the Premier League. So you throwing in these youngsters <clears throat> at international level, I don't think it was a gamble because you knew exactly what you wanted from them. As you mentioned, they got the energy levels and whatnot. But do you think that was a little bit of a risk because of their lack of experience? Well, yes, it, it ultimately was probably. But, um, you know, for us, we, we felt that, we felt they were good enough. You know, this was mm. the thing. It was like, and even, I, I go back to the same player, that 16-year-old we gave the debut to, and, and sometimes you've just got to go with your gut instinct. You know, nowadays, and you know, I'm the biggest advocate for sports science you'll find. You know, we've got GPS tracking here in Bangladesh. We've got you know, the heart rate monitors. We film all the training sessions. So for me, you know, that side of the game is so important, but also sometimes you've just got to go with your gut instinct. And the night before that game against Tunisia, so it's not even we were playing a small nation. We were playing Tunisia, that, um, and we'd never beaten them in our history. We ended up drawing 2-2, actually conceding a last-minute goal. We almost won the game. But um, with George, all of my coaching staff were saying, don't play him, all of them. So I had like in, in my hotel suite the night before, we always have like a little bit of a get together and we discuss the team and what we're going to do. And actually one of my assistants was George's club manager. Oh, wow. And even he was, even he was saying, don't play him. <laughs> all of my assistant who, who had flown in from America, you know, my goalkeeping coach who'd flown up from Swansea City. You know, I had all of these guys around me, my analyst. You know, all of them to a man in this room. There were six of us in the room, and everyone, five votes, said, don't play him. <laughs> and I sort of went, right, I'll think about it. And I just, I went to bed, and I woke up the next morning, and I just thought, no, he's playing. He has to play. Mm. And I so I went completely against what all of my coaching staff were advising. But I just, I knew it in somewhere down. I was like, he's ready. Right. And he was, and he went, and he literally, one of my favorite memories in football will be, um, when we switched his wing, we put him from left wing to right wing just after I think Tunisia had equalised for the first time, and the the back on the or the winger on the far side is like waving frantically at their dugout to get their attention, and he gets their attention. And he just points to George and then holds his arms out as in going, "What do I do with him?" <laughs> and and that made me smile. I just sort of thought, you know what? Yeah, after seventy minutes, he ran out of gas, and we had to bring him off of cramp, but. I was like, do you know what? He was ready. And, and that sort of told me as well that, yes, you can have all the data and, yes, you can have all of this information and you have to use it. But sometimes you've just got to go with your feeling and your, your instinct about the game. And, and thankfully, I've got that more, more often I've got that call right than I've got it wrong. You don't always mm. get it right. But, you know, thankfully, just like that occasion, it's been right more than it's been wrong. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. Well, look, we always hear this rhetoric about national team jobs that is it's hard for managers because they only spend a few weeks at a time with their players throughout the year. I mean, was that an obstacle for you or do you think players behave different with you than at club level because you brought something fresh to their game? Um, I think the thing about national team, the relationship a national team coach has with his players is different to a club coach. A, you're picking a national national team and so the players want to be there you know they want to play for their national team so whereas at a club a player maybe has a bit more power because they've got a contract you know right. it's sort of like well I'm on, under contract for the next two years or three years you know it's not easy to get you know it's, it's all well and good saying place a player on the transfer list etc etc but now with football being the modern business it is you have to those are choppy waters that you're navigating because if you don't want a player well you have to manage the situation in a certain way because you don't want his market value to drop because if it gets out that you don't want them, 
then clubs are going to offer less of a transfer fee, etc. So you've got to navigate those waters as a club coach that you don't as an international coach, because as an international coach, you are the boss of the, of the nation's sort of pride. And so these players want to play for their country. And so you maybe have a little bit more power than a club coach because it's very, you know, you don't have a 20-man squad. You've got a 100-man squad right, yeah. that you can choose yeah. from. And if a player steps out of line or isn't listening or doing what's required, well, then there's another player who's equally as hungry to come and pull on the shirt. So with a national team coach, I do think you can wield a little bit more power than you can as a club team sometimes. Um, and yeah, so like the challenge always being a national team coach, as is, is, is always talked about, is your time away from the players. But equally, the flip side of that coin is you get more time to prepare you know, mm. the challenge now that I've moved into club football is that you really don't have a lot of time to prepare for the next game in terms of the analysis and in terms of the scouting. Um, whereas with international football, you've got two months, you know, or you've got a month. So you're able to know your opposition inside out. You're able to fine tune a game plan to that opposition. Whereas at club level, you're playing a game every, you know, seven or four days. So you're really having to work one or two games ahead of time with mm-hmm. your with your scouting. So you know it's there's there's pros and cons. International football, yes, less time with the players, but you've got more time to prepare. Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. Well, tell me something. What was Kai Kamara like to work with? I mean, the reason I ask is because I remember a couple of seasons ago we covered a story that involved him getting booked for twerking as a goal celebration. <laughs> yeah, um, Kai is a great <laughs> character. Um, you know, I. I, I can't speak highly enough of Kai. You know, he's he is a natural sort of leader within a group. Um, you know, he's very well educated. He obviously left Sierra Leone when he was younger as a refugee and went to the United States. And But then he came and he wanted to give back. And through his charitable efforts, he does give back very much so in Sierra Leone. You know, I know he was part of building a school with another player, Michael LaHood. And, you know, I know he does a lot of other good things, but, uh, you know, so as a person, he's a top individual and as a footballer, he's a very good footballer. Um, and he shows that, you know, he came to the Premier League and, and he did well, you know, he did reasonably well coming to England and in the championship. And obviously in MLS, you know, he's he has very few peers in terms of his goal scoring record in MLS. So, you know, but for me, he's a top character and, you know, it was great to work with him for that period of time. And we've kept in touch since. Um, every so often so I see he's just moved to another new club in MLS so he'll get a you know every club he goes to he's very warmly welcomed but that's because of the type of person he is um, as much as being a good footballer (laughs) fantastic well mate correct me if I'm wrong but your time as a national team head coach there coincided with the Ebola outbreak in the country what was that experience like for you um, it, it was challenging. It, there's no other way of putting it. Um, you know, let's be honest, football was a very minor um, impacted party in the grand scheme of things. You know, Ebola was, you know, it was something that as a country, um, Sierra Leone just didn't, not that any country would ever deserve something like that, but, you know, Sierra Leone, you know, the people are so warm and welcoming. And after the Civil War, which really was not of their doing, you know, if you look into your history of Sierra Leone, you know, it was very much Liberia, you know, getting involved and Gaddafi getting involved because he had visions of coming to the rescue and all of this. So um, it was a civil war that wasn't of Sierra Leone's doing, yet they suffered from it. And then they were just getting back on their feet. Tourism was starting to come back. And then the Ebola break happened and it again put the country back on its knees and then even since Ebola they obviously had the disasters with the uh, sort of the flooding and the the mudslides of a year or two back where a lot of people unfortunately passed away and again another travesty that just keeps hitting you know what is a beautiful and very warm and welcoming country and you know so it was a really bad time for the for the country the Ebola outbreak and you know, football-wise, yes, it meant we couldn't play any home games. We had to play all our games away from home. There was a much tighter sort of security presence around us. There was health checks. I remember going to the Ivory Coast and them insisting that the only way they would agree to the game would be if the players submitted to having sort of, you know, temperature checks two or three times a day. And obviously they decided one of those times a day should be 6 a.m. in the morning. 
Um, so obviously the players are getting dragged out of bed, woken up to have their temperature taken to make sure they're not ill. Um, so some of that's a bit of, you know, a bit of gamesmanship. But equally, we needed to play the games. And, you know, our message to the players was, look, let's try and be a beacon of light for the people of Sierra Leone. You know, it's a really tough time here, but you know that everyone's football crazy. And if you can go and get a result in these games, well, maybe even just for 30 minutes or an hour or a day, it makes people forget about what's going on back at home and, and you know, just be happy that their football team's doing well. So that was the sort of, that was our our mindset in mm. that qualifying campaign. Yeah, the feel-good factor, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, it's just it's trying to do that in what was a very dark period for the mm. country and you know going out and saying look at least the other thing as well is international media always focus on the negatives. Yeah. That's just the nature of the media that the, in the modern age and so obviously at the time every day was just you know about Ebola. So it was about Sierra Leone and Ebola and we were sort of like look if we can go and beat the Ivory Coast or we can beat Cameroon, you know Maybe we get on the news headlines for a positive reason, and people out in the rest of the world are here in the name Sierra Leone for something other than the Ebola outbreak. So, you know, again, that was our mantra. Can we in some way shed a, a positive light on this mm-hmm. country that deserves it more than most? And, you know, try and try and, you know, defer you sort of take people's eyes away from from the bad news just for a moment. Mm, great stuff. Well, um, another national team role followed, uh, this time with Rwanda. Now, <clears throat> am I right in saying the infrastructure and attitude towards football development in Rwanda was much different to, to that in Sierra Leone? I mean, I've heard that there are around 30 artificial pitches throughout the country, which is quite impressive. Yeah, no, Rwanda as a country, and East Africa in general, I would say is a lot more organized than West Africa. West Africa is chaotic and it's loud and it's it's you know passionate whereas east africa is a lot more logical and a lot more <laughs> you know a lot more organized right. and so you, know, you go to rwanda and all the roads are beautiful you know the airport works very well you know my brother came to visit rwanda and he said it was a little bit like it reminded him a little bit of tenerife or oh, wow. one of the spanish islands <laughs> for the reason that it felt like europe but you knew you weren't in Europe anymore. Right. So very much like the Spanish islands, it's Europe, but it's not Europe. Um, so that was that was his impression. I think it's a pretty accurate one for Rwanda, is that it is very much like a European country in that sense, in, in the organization levels and the efficiency. And, and yeah, part of that is that they, they utilize the FIFA funding a little bit better than West African nations do. So obviously FIFA have large grants available to, for football development and Rwanda have utilized that to build numerous training pitches around the country for both youth development and for the senior sort of Premier League teams to train on. Fantastic. Well, you guided Rwanda to the quarterfinals of the African Nations Championship in 2016, but were relieved of your duties that same year despite 11 wins in 25 games in charge. How much did that affect your confidence? Um, you know, I think by that stage, you've got to remember, I, I'd experienced it before with Sierra Leone, because ultimately with Sierra Leone, we broke our rankings record into the top 50 and seventh in Africa. And three weeks later, they terminated my contract. So, um, you know, we, we, ju- we just set their highest ever point in history and it wasn't enough. So, um, you know, you're, you're never more than two games away from, from the sack in international football. And, and unfortunately, that, unfortunately, that was the way with Rwanda as well. You know, we'd done so well in the African Nation Championship, the best the country had ever done. But then, you know, we're into the next qualifying campaign and we, I think we, we lost two on the bounce. And it was sort of like, right, that's it, done. Even though I'd only just signed a new two-year contract, I'd signed a two-year contract and then three, year, three months later... They're sort of like, oh no, we want to change direction, and they made made their decision. So you're sort of like, you know, it's baffling sometimes. But you you you, you when you're in football long enough, you you come to understand that decisions get made for a whole host of reasons, and and at least half of them bear no resemblance to logic or common sense. And so you just get on with it. You're just like, it's happened, you know. 
let's look at the next thing because mm-hmm. you can't do anything about it anymore and you, you just have to know that you look back at your record and you know you did what you, you felt was right you know you you just try to make more correct decisions than bad decisions and if the results are there to back it up which i believe with sierra leone and rwanda the results were there to back it up mm-hmm. um then you just have to you know they make their decision for their own reasons and you just have to sort of get up and go again absolutely well, a, a brief stint at Lithuanian side, FK Kauno Zalgiris, pardon me if I've butchered their name, uh, <laughs> followed before and moved to London where you became performance coach at Curva Coaching. Now, what were the noticeable differences between the attitudes of players in Africa compared to Lithuania? Um, I think there is, yeah, there's definitely a culture difference. The, bit, the big difference for me was Lithuania being a former Soviet country um there is and i've not been to other soviet former soviet countries but i am told by lithuanians that they are similar but i would say lithuania was always a glass half empty type of place rather than a glass half full and um and so motivation, you know, I had to go and, you know, pick up a book again just to remind myself of maybe some new... I've always considered myself very good at motivating players, but even in Lithuania, I had to go and read up on maybe some new techniques of oh, wow. get through to people. Because, you know, I, in Lithuania, it was very much, you know, 10 things could go right, and it only took one thing, even one small thing, to go wrong, and it was all disaster, yet they wouldn't they wouldn't want to you know focus on the positive things it would be the one little negative thing would become the focus <laughs> and so that was an interesting challenge for me um which was and again it's good to add to your skill set to be in those environments but yeah that was very much it it was that it was all or nothing it was either disaster or it wasn't but it only required one little thing to go wrong for people's mindsets to turn to the negative. So mm. that was an interesting environment to be in, but it was definitely a worthwhile one, I think, because the more times you're in different cultures and different environments, the the better your own personal skill set becomes, I believe. Mm. Well, did that play a part or did that influence you to, to continue there or not to continue there? Because, I mean, it, it didn't really work out for you, did it? Yeah, it was one of those things, and it was sort of nobody's fault in the end. Um, there was enthusiasm from both me and the club to continue on and to agree a new contract, but um, because the league was restructured, I came quite late to the end, towards the end of one season, and we finished down at, sort of towards the bottom of the league, and we had been told verbally that didn't matter because the league was going to restructure and that we'd be in the top division the next season. So we were planning for that. I went to Nigeria on a scouting mission. We had players lined up from Scandinavia to come in, you know, as new signings and preseason. But then it went on and on. And despite the club pushing the federation for written confirmation of what the league setup was going to be the next season, they would never get it in writing. And so the club were obviously very cautious at committing to this sort of program that we had designed that was going to cost, you know, a bit of resources, you know, to bring in these players. And we felt we could push for the Europa League in the new season. And everyone was very positive about it. But the club needed written confirmation Mm. of what division they were going to be in before they could commit these finances. And that's completely understandable from a business point of view. I had no argument with the hierarchy about that. I understood it completely. I was frustrated by it, but I understood it. And we got round and we were like one week before preseason was due to begin. And we only had like, I think we had maybe nine or 10 players signed. and, And most of them were young lads. And we had all these players ready to come in, but the club couldn't commit to it. The club could only commit to a you know, a Division One budget rather than a Premier League budget um, because they didn't know that they were going to be in the Premier League. And, and ultimately, I said, look, what I didn't want to do was agree to stay, sign a squad to try and compete to win the first division, and then at the last minute be told we're in the Premier League with a squad built for the first division. And and ultimately, you know, ultimately that's sort of what happened is the club signed some players that we agreed not to continue. They went ahead, you know, found a Lithuanian coach and and 
I think it was two weeks before the season started or two and a half weeks before the season was due to start. They'd already, they were already three or four weeks into preseason when the Federation basically confirmed in writing what they've been saying verbally. And, and so like, had I said everything probably would have been fine, but equally you're then rushing around in the last two weeks of preseason trying to sign players. And when you're rushing to sign players, you tend to make bad decisions. Mm. So, you know, I, I was comfortable with my decision not to stay. Um, I'm still in good contact with the club. It was only actually when I came out here to Bangladesh, there was one player that I had, you know, thought of signing that the club did eventually sign. And he stayed for the Lithuanian season, but now has went on. I think he's in Latvia now. But I contacted the director of the club a couple of weeks ago to see what he'd been like, you know, what his attitude was like, etc. Because we might consider him for out here in Bangladesh. Oh wow! Um, so you know, it's still, you know, I'm still in good terms with the club. It's very rare that you leave football clubs and you're on good terms with the management. So mm. you know, I, I very much like the people in Zalgiris at, at Kaunas, and I'm sure I'll go back and visit because Kaunas as a city is a lovely place, and and Lithuania as a country is a lovely place. Um, so I'm certain I'll go back and watch games in the future. Fantastic. Well, mate, talk to me about your current role in Bangladesh with Safe Sporting Club. If I'm honest, I, I know there's a Colombian player who, who played at the 2009-17 World Cup. Um, can you educate me, please? <laughs> yeah, so, like, to be honest, I got a phone call out of the blue a little bit from an old friend of mine in football and sort of proposed this opportunity to me. And, Again, for me, you know, you'd obviously followed the I-Leagues or the Super League in India taking off quite in a big way in recent years, but you maybe didn't see too much of Bangladesh. I knew Jamie Day was out here, you know, he'd coached in the National League in England and he'd been assistant at Gillingham and I knew Jamie had come out here to take the national team last year and so I sent him a message to say, you know, what's Bangladesh like, etc., to get a bit of background on the country and do your research but you know I came in a little bit unknown what I was able to find out was about this club and it's a relatively new football club it's only three years old but it's owned by sort of the biggest company in Bangladesh who are very ambitious and so they're putting a good amount of money and it's the same on my first day here meeting with the ownership you know I was sort of saying well I want to bring the catapult GPS system in which is the same system you know like Chelsea and Real Madrid and all use so it's not it's not cheap but they're sort of saying, absolutely, let's get it on board. You know, I was able to bring assistant coaches in with me. I'm actually in a process of bringing some, you know, launching an internship program for, you know, new graduates who want experience in the game. And we're going to provide all of their accommodation and look after them if they come out for like, you know, the six months or a year after they've graduated from college to get some experience in the game. So the club are very supportive of what we're trying to do. Um, the one downside for me is I was appointed after the transfer window closed. So I'm sort of working with the players that we've got, but they're a good bunch of players. And you know our ambition is to try and improve on the fourth place finish in the Premier League they got last year. So to try and break into the top three or the top two. But again, it's surprising to me. There's a good amount of finances in this league. Um, there's a player who was, um, uh, there's a Puerto Rican player playing for Bushendura Kings, who, or no, not Puerto Rican, um, Costa Rican, sorry. He was at this World Cup, so he played in Russia, and he just signed for one of the teams here, um, and he's on quite a lot, lot of money. So, um, <laughs> you know, all the players here have sort of four, you're allowed four farm players. Um, again, one of the unlucky things here was one of our farm players, a Colombian striker, um, tore his ACL three days before I arrived and is out for the entire season. Oh, so, again, you're only allowed four farm players and one of them is out for the entire season. So, And he just happens to be a centre forward. So, you know, there are challenges, but it's it's a very ambitious club and it's it's nice to be in an environment, you know, where they are 100% supportive of all of the things you want to do. Um, in Africa, as you can imagine, because resources were tighter, you sort of had to fight for things. You really had to convince people why. It was, you know, we brought GPS into Rwanda. We were the first national team in Africa, I'm, I believe, to be GPS. And now all of the African teams have got the same GPS system we <laughs> had. Half have taken on. 
I feel we're, we were sort of trailblazers in Africa in that sense yeah. with it, but you know, you had to really fight for that, and I had to go and negotiate with the, comp- the GPS company to get a good deal on it because otherwise we couldn't get it. Whereas here, you know, our owner, our chairman's, I think his favorite quote when I'm meeting with him is he's like, Coach, you stick to your plan. If it's in your plan, no problem, we'll get it. And for as a coach, that's excellent because now it's, it does mean no excuses. We've got to perform because everything I'm asking for, I'm getting. But you'd rather have it and have the pressure of performing than not have it because you still have the pressure of performing, mm. you know, because everybody, regardless of whether you're, you have the resources or you don't have the resources, everybody still wants to win. And so, yeah, we're now in a situation where you are, you know, with, with Sierra Leone, with Rwanda, with Zalgiris, we were maybe the little guy trying to upset the big guy's table and trying to take, you know, take somebody's seat. Whereas now here we would be considered one of the top four teams in a 13 team league. And so, it's a different place to be. You know, we're going to have the ball a lot more than we maybe did in previous clubs or federations. And yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge and it's, you know, I'm what, six, seven weeks into it now and it's, it's going well so far. Well, it's good to hear, mate. And long may it continue. Well, mate, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you ever so much for your time. And uh, I really hope we could do this again sometime. No, absolutely. That's it's been great to have a chat and sort of reminisce over some old times. You know, in football now, you you tend you don't get too many opportunities to sort of look back over recent years because you're so busy with the next day, the next week. So it's sometimes nice to take a little bit of time out and just sort of reflect over recent happenings. So thanks for that. No, anytime, mate. Well, look before I let you go, would you like to tell our listeners your your Twitter handle because I believe that you're quite active on that. Yeah, it's just sort of at Johnny McKinstry. So um, if they search for me on there, it's as I say, you, you try to put one or two little things up. Um, it's also for the players and stuff. You remind them of messages. It's like if they see stuff going out, it's, you know, my big thing here is about standards and keeping standards high and, you know, always worrying about what you can control. You know, don't worry about the external factors so much. Take them into account, but worry about the things you can control. So, you know, a lot of stuff maybe that goes out, you know, once or twice a week on those platforms tends to be of that sort of ilk. Mm, that's right. That's right. Well, mate, thank you very much for your time. Um, and we'll catch up soon, definitely. No problem. It's been great chatting. So that was Johnny McKinstry, guys. Hope you enjoyed this interview. Uh, we're on Twitter at Shoot the Defense. Please visit our friends over the FNX network. FNX.network is the website. You'll see a whole bunch of podcasts the DD Footy Factory, Three Midfield, One Up Front, Talking Balls, Sofa Sports News, and so on and so forth. Uh, also, visit stealthsecretsource.co.uk for the latest betting tips. So until next time, guys, take care.